Well, this is our third week uh, through the month of August here on this sermon series about Back to Basics, and we're talking about some of these basic uh, uh, elements that we need to make sure are spiritual disciplines in our life uh, as we seek to grow to be uh, fully devoted followers of Christ and seek to grow to spiritual maturity. Uh, we started by talking about the importance of uh, Bible study and being involved in our Bible uh, reading and studying and a Bible study class. Uh, last week we talked about prayer and some of the components of prayer and how we should pray. And today we're going to talk about worship and the importance of worship. And by asking a simple question is, uh, is your worship real? Is your worship real? And to ask that question means it takes us uh, beyond the issue of just simply encouraging you to be here and to be present uh, as we worship, but to a deeper understanding of the significance of worship and what uh, incorporates into authentic worship uh, as we worship God on a, on a daily and weekly basis. And so we want to talk about that today. One of the things that I ran across recently is some trivia that uh, you might find helpful somewhere in life, and that is that um, we get these things from how we, um, how we found out about how we get measurements in our culture. Take the, the inch, for example. Uh, that was based upon a king by the name of Edgar. I don't know whether he was Edgar the first, Edgar the last, uh, or where he was king. But an inch was measured by his knuckle to the tip of his thumb. And that's how we got the, 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 the inch that exists today. Then um, about the, our present day foot. Um, how many inches are in a foot? How many of you wear a size 12 shoe? Anybody wear a size 12 shoe? Well, you probably got about 12 inch foot then, right? The foot measurement for a foot came from King Charlemagne. The interesting thing is when old Edgar died, they came up with another measurement for an inch. But when Charlemagne died, they kept the uh, size of that in, intact. And it's still 12 inches, the size of his foot. King Henry gave us a measurement for the yard. I don't know which King Henry this was. But King Henry VIII or what? But that was measured from the tip of his nose to the tip of his fingers. And then how about a mile? How many feet are in a mile? 5,280. When Rome, when the Roman government was trying to get a universal measurement of the mile, they had it at 5,000 feet, which would be about 1,000 paces for a Roman soldier. But then when they started to introduce it worldwide, they found out they had a trouble with the British farmers because they measured their fields in furlongs, which would be 660 feet long. And they didn't want to change. So when it was introduced in Britain then, the mile was changed to 5,280 feet, which is exactly eight furlongs. How about the distance uh, in, I guess, uh, high school, college, and professional baseball from Pitcher's Mound to home plate? What is it? 60 feet. Six inches. It was originally 50 feet when the game of baseball began. And then the uh, baseball leaders in 1893 decided they needed to move it back a little bit. And they wanted to move back to 60 feet. And the person they hired to do that renovation on the field and the drawing and all read that as a six instead of a 6-0 and, uh, and 60 feet, no inches. And so that's how we get our measurement today. From Pitcher's Mountain to home plate, 60 feet, 6 inches. Now... How about a marathon? Any, I know we got some runners here. Anybody run in a marathon? How many miles is that? Huh? 26.2, David says. Anybody else know specifically how long a marathon is? Now he's saying four hours and how many minutes? 
It just amazes me that anybody can run 26 miles. But it's a little bit different. Point two, I guess, in that figures out what the marathon distance really is. It's 26 miles, 385 yards. Well, how did it get to be that particular measurement? It started out being 25 miles in 1896. But during the 1908 London Olympics, Queen Alexandra wanted her grandchildren to be able to see the start of the race. And so they moved it back one mile, 385 yards on the front lawn of Windsor Castle. And so a marathon is 26 miles and how many yards? <laughs> 26 miles, 385 yards. You say point two. Okay, whatever. All right. Now, I thought about those measurements, trivial as they might be. I thought about how do we measure whether our worship is real and genuine? How can we measure uh, our worship and know that we truly worship? You know, I think usually we, we, um, we, we would gauge our worship about how we feel when we leave the worship experience. Some of you feel relieved. Others of you feel uplifted, okay? And basically we judge it by these elements. If the music was uplifting and the sermon was inspiring, which it always is, and there was a spirit of awe, and especially if decisions were made for Christ, you know, then we think we've had a good worship experience. And, and nothing wrong with that. But the essence, real worship, genuine worship, goes beyond liking the music and enduring the sermon. There are some other components to that. And I think there are three that are greatly important that we need to understand, okay? First of all, worship that's real is when God is glorified. Uh, the word literally for worship literally means out of the Greek uh, to kiss or to embrace. And the emphasis means then that when we come to worship God, we're here to show our love and affection for God. We are here to worship God and to show our love for Him. There are several verses in the Scriptures I just uh, don't have time to do a lot of them, but Psalm 95, 6. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Hebrews 12, 24 says, Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And Revelation 4, 10 says, The 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. Now, those were the actions of worshipers who wanted to show God how much they loved Him. And so, worship exists for the opportunity for us to tell God how much we love Him. So, worship is all about God. Many years ago, Kierkegaard, who was a Danish theologian, uh, I think gave us the correct concept of understanding worship. Most of us, I think, would think that as you sit there in the pew, you sit there and you kind of judge um, how well we do up here as the choir and the musicians and the pastor and whoever else is a part of the worship experience. And we hope that God shows up and that we get a chance to worship Him. But Kierkegaard, I think, understood it correctly because he, he, he compared worship to a, a theater production. And he said that God is the audience. Okay? God is the audience, the pastor, musician, choir, all of those. We are worship prompters helping you to worship. And you as the congregation are the actors. And most of the time I think the analogy is that you sit there and you kind of judge how, how well we do. In reality, you are the worshipers. And God is watching you as the audience to see how well you worship. And a part of that is how well as prompters we help you 
to worship and show your love for God. So here's the main thing about worship that we all need to learn, and that's this. Worship is not all about me. You understand that? Worship is not all about me. Now, I put the word all in there because there is a part of worship to where you have to connect with it. And it's our responsibility as worship leaders to be able to connect with you so that you can connect with God in that time of worship. That's our responsibility as worship prompters. Now, to make sure we all understand that, I want us to say that together, can we? Worship is not all about me. Will you say it after me? Worship is not all about me. Now, you sit there and you said, I know that. Well, let me ask you, have you ever left out of here and said, you know, I didn't get anything out of that today. And we make statements like this. Why can't they sing some of the songs that I like? I didn't think the preacher should have said what he said about such and such a passage. Or did you see so and so the other day? They weren't paying a bit of attention. Well, how do you know they weren't? Because you were watching them. Or you might say, you know, I can't believe that so and so didn't speak to me there today. Then you really haven't worshiped. You've been distracted by it. Here's the problem worship isn't about getting anything, worship is all about giving, and it's about giving to God. And we are the active participants in worship as we give praise and adoration and express our love to God. And there are many tools that God gives us in worship to use. In fact, in the Old Testament, one of the greatest ways that they worship was through sacrifice and through offerings. Some of you might think, well, that sounds like to me it's the same thing, sacrifice and offerings. But you remember in the story where, where Abraham is taking his son Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him? God was testing his faith. God intervened. He didn't have to sacrifice him. But Abraham said something important. He said to the servants when he left them at the bottom of the mountain, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Worship. Now throughout the law, God detailed what kind of sheep and goats and bulls he desired in worship. And if you wanted to truly worship God with appropriate sacrifice, those are one of the ones that you would take. Now we don't do those kinds of sacrifices anymore. But uh, here's some components in worship, I think, that are helpful for us. God gives us these to use in our worship and expressing love to Him. It's singing and praying and taking communion, which is what we'll do today, listening to a sermon, and then having fellowship together. And all of that is designed to put our focus on God. And, I, and as we put our focus on God, then we are able to worship Him and love Him in such a way that we show that love for Him that we have. Let me read from you for your passion out of Psalm 86. Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name, for you are great and do marvelous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Lord that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever, for great is your love toward me. See, worship is real. When we express gratitude to God, love for God, and God is glorified. Here's the second thing. Worship is real when we seek God's will. 
Beautiful passage out of Romans 12, 1 through 2, that Paul writes to the Roman Christians, and we hear today. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, look again at those words. Some of you probably have them committed to memory. But Paul talks about worship that's pleasing to God, and he says, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of what? Worship. See, worship is done here on Sunday mornings. But worship can be done any day of the week and any time during the week, and it should be done. And it should be done as we offer our lives to God as a living sacrifice. Then Paul goes on in verse 2 to say, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we worship when we change how we think. We experience real worship when our thinking process is changed spiritually. And when our minds become transformed and renewed is when our mind becomes changed. And we change from thinking about ourselves and what we want out of life to thinking about what God wants and what His will is. And see, in in other words, we sacrifice, as Paul uses that word, our will to know the will of God. And Sunday mornings are a great way for us to do that. Through prayer, through singing hymns and songs of praise, when we take communion, when we listen to the sermon, when we go through a time of commitment and looking at our lives and see what decisions we need to make so that we can be changed, to be transformed in the way that we think in this world. See, our entire Sunday morning worship should be focused on allowing God to, uh, to change us and to shape us and mold us. Now here's the third thing about worship. Worship that is real is real when we worship in spirit and truth. Rick used that as a phrase I think earlier in, in his prayer. And we talk about that a lot. We quote it a lot because it comes right straight out of the scripture. We worship in spirit and truth. Well what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? And what's the context of that saying? Well, we find it in John 4 where Jesus has the uh, unique engagement with the Samaritan woman at the well. And when we pick up in John 4 verse 19, this is what we read. The woman says, Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in spirit 
and in truth. What does that mean? Spiritual worship means this. Spiritual worship is offering ourselves to God. It's the presentation of our life to God. See, everybody could say that they are created by God, which would be true. But not everybody is a child of God through the experience of redemption. And those of us who confess Christ and follow after Christ, we are. We have been redeemed. And we are children of God. Now, what that means is then that we have that unique opportunity for our spirit to meet with the Spirit of God as we worship Him. Because His Spirit is in, within us. And then what does it mean to worship God in truth? Well, Jesus said, I am the truth. And what he was saying there is that when I say I am the truth, then the veil that might, that might um, um, hide me from you and from your knowing me as the truth has now been revealed. And there is no veil. In fact, it's been unveiled. He said something, the word literally means that something has been exposed when we look at it in the Greek language. And so when Jesus says, I am the truth, then he has perfect right to say the Father and I are one. So that means that when we worship, that we focus on Jesus as the center of our worship. It's not about us. It's not about the music. It's not about the prayers. It's about God. Centering our worship, focusing our worship on Jesus Christ. And we do that because He is the one and the only one who died on the cross, took our sins to Calvary, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could enter into that wonderful relationship with God. And that's why the Apostle Paul would say, we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And one of the uh, shorter statements of, of faith, known as the Shorter Catechism, it simply states about worship, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what worship is really about. Worship is expressing love to God so that He's glorified. Worship is seeking after God's will so that He can transform our mind into thinking the way that He wants us to think. And worship is ultimately spirit-led and spirit-focused as we allow our spirit to be joined together with the Spirit of God. And we worship in truth when we center on Jesus Christ who Himself is the truth. Today our worship I think takes on one of the highest aspects that it can take. And that's as we celebrate what we know as the Lord's Supper. The meal that Jesus instituted with His disciples, those who were following after Him on the night of His betrayal and His arrest. And as we partake of the bread which represents the body of Christ and the cup of juice which represents His blood. It's for those of you who are worshiping Him in spirit and truth today as true worshipers. That your spirit is united with the Spirit of God. And that Jesus Christ is in the center of your life. And that your life focuses around Him because you offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. And you allow Him to change your thinking into His thinking. Your will into His will.